Hi, I'm Michael Siddle. And I'm Nick Nanos. And welcome to Trendline. Uh, Nick, first of all, you've got a different background there. Where where are you? Somewhere in Canada. I guess, no, I'm on my, I'm traveling today and I'm en route to Victoria, British Columbia to CFB Esquimalt to attend a graduation ceremony for Naval Warfare Officers of which one of my sons is going to be graduating. Amazing. Well, congratulations to him. That's fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so in today's episode, this is our second last episode of the season. Next episode in two weeks will be our year end review. Uh, Nick, I'm hoping you're bringing back your your fist pump rating scale. Uh, for those listening who can't see what Nick is doing, he is enacting that rating scale right now. Uh, in today's episode, uh, you know, the days are getting shorter, the nights are longer, there's a lot of anxiety inducing headlines. So we'll be talking about uh, how Canadians feel about uh, their future standard of living. We're also doing a provincial check-in on Ontario, where the Ford government is talking about highways ahead of an election year. And uh, our international uh, look will be at uh, travel, of course, uh, as the Omicron variant is on everyone's minds. So first, uh, Nick, how pessimistic are Canadians these days? Well, technically, can I say, yes. Look at the numbers. You check out the trend line. We ask Canadians, and this is one of the questions that we track on a regular basis. Do they think that the next generation of Canadians will have a higher, lower, or the same standard of living? 63% or about six out of every 10 Canadians believe that we'll have a lower standard of living, while only about 11% think that we'll have a higher standard of living. That's a factor of six to one. So that, Michael, think of it this way. You're walking down the street in your neighborhood, six of your neighbors, Set, you know, basically have a cloud going over their head, following them around because they're thinking their kids or the next generation of Canadians will have a lower standard of living. And when you look at that trend line in the long term, that 63% is the highest that we've seen, seen since we started tracking this about 10 years ago. Wow. I mean, we, we've got talk of inflation uh, these days, but, but how much of that pessimism is from the pandemic, do you think, Nick? How about, I think we should just call it a cocktail of pessimism because mm-hmm. like uh, choose your poison right right now. So there's still people that are worried about the uh, pandemic uh, and now with the Omicron uh, variation, what that might mean. There are people that are worried about climate change. You know, think if you happen to be in British Columbia, you've dealt with floods, you did with fire. Uh, and, you know, now we have inflation where people are just worried about paying the bills for uh, for basic items and you roll up all of those things and uh, a combination of all those factors i think at least is is driving this whole pessimism about the future hmm. uh speaking of the environment where where does that uh rank in, in the list of uh, concerns for canadians right now well in the in the latest tracking that we do every week on uh on the top unprompted national issue of concern that we just released uh the environment is now starting to, is, is number one and it's starting to pull ahead of, uh, of other issues. And, you know, the interesting thing is coronavirus is number three, at least in the latest nanos tracking. Uh, it hasn't been this low uh, as a top unprompted national issue of concern since, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. It's going to be interesting to see with this Omicron uh, variation, whether that fuels uh, greater concern about the pandemic. But right now, the trajectory is in favor of the environment as a top issue of concern. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the terrible stuff that the folks in British Columbia have been dealing with. Uh, 
Nick, uh, what, what does this pessimism, uh, how, how does it sort of affect uh, federal politics if, if you're the ruling party? How, uh, should, how, do the, how do the liberals, I guess, react to this? Well, you know, I think not just for the liberals, but for all of the federal parties, here's what people want to hear about. You know, what are, what are, what are parties proposing, including the government, but what is everyone proposing uh, to deal with the environment? What are people, what are governments and the federal party leaders proposing on inflation? You know, it's, it's one thing, it's, it's fair for the, for the opposition parties to attack and blame the federal government, but the, there's also responsibility for that that they have, in addition to the government, to actually propose what the path forward is. Is inflation good or bad? Will we be accepting inflation for a long period of time? And this is where the Bank of Canada comes in and their long-term strategy. So I think what Canadians want to hear about is, will this be the new normal for the price of gas and other types of things that people need every day? Or is this a one-off? Will it go back to perhaps the way it was even just a month or two ago? Uh, Nick, in the last episode, we, we discussed the, uh, the throne speech and, 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 you know, what to watch for and, and, and whether we would see any big ticket, you know, leg potential legacy items for Trudeau that might signal that the prime minister was thinking of stepping down. Uh, what, what did you think of that speech? Well, I think that speech, there weren't a lot of big surprises, but it's pretty clear that the, the liberals and the prime minister are focused on, on delivering on key elements of the platform that they've had since 2015, right? Mm -hmm. So childcare, the national uh, childcare program, and also reconciliation with, uh, with First Peoples, uh, Indigenous Peoples. So I think those are the big uh, things. And, you know, perhaps for, uh, for Justin Trudeau, those are pretty major accomplishments. If he can, uh, for example, get Ontario on board mm -hmm. on, on uh, the childcare program. After all, if Jason Kenney, the United Conservative Party person in uh, Alberta, is good to joining up with the federal government on child care. What about Doug Ford in Ontario, right? And uh, Ontario's, Ontario's the, I think, needs to be part of that to make it a real national program for the Liberals to claim victory. But I don't mm -hmm. know whether, I don't know whether Doug Ford wants to give the Liberal brand a, any kind of victory because he's going to be looking at his own uh, electoral fortune soon enough in the, in the coming year. But uh, I think what we saw in place in this, in the speech from the throne, and also the latest cabinet shuffle is uh, a number of individuals, Nita Anand, for example, at defense being elevated that could be a potential leadership aspirant. Uh, you know, Christian Freeland is still there. Champagne is still a key factor. Jolie got a promotion. It'll be, that's interesting what that might signal. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are a number of people that have been put in positions that could challenge for the leadership. And we also have a speech from the throne that if the liberals and the government can deliver on that, Perhaps Justin Trudeau might be thinking about uh, what he would might want to do in the future if he believes that he's accomplished his mission and what he set out to do as prime minister. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, Ontario and Ford and, and childcare. Uh, I mean, watching that press conference with, with, in Alberta with Jason Kenney and Justin Trudeau was, was almost surreal seeing those two uh, together. Uh, we are heading into an election year in Ontario. How is the Ford government doing in, uh, in uh, Ontario these days? How do we say, okay, when we look at data from my uh, friend Jean-Marc Leger, who heads up Leger Marketing, um, the latest numbers in the Ontario race has the uh, Progressive Conservatives of Ontario at 34%, the Liberals at 31, NDP at 26. Interestingly, compared to the last election, the Conservatives are down about six points. The Liberals are up 
significantly because they were, I think, at around 20, uh, they were at around 20, so they're, they're up. Uh, and, uh, and the NDP are down a bit. So, you know, what we're seeing is factoring the margin of error or the accuracy for the research, probably a very tight race between the, uh, the progressive conservatives in Ontario, the Ford conservatives and the uh, Stephen Del Duca mm. uh, liberals and a bit of a disappointing number probably for the new Democrats because, you know, last election they're at 34, now they're at 26. Um, and they've got to be probably a little bit disappointed on that front. Uh, so Stephen Del Duca is the new leader of the Liberal Party. Um, how, how are his personal numbers? Uh, how how, how likable is he uh, compared to his party's brand? Well, according to the uh, Leslie marketing stuff, he's, I think his favorability scores are at around 23%, which means he, there's no political coattails. Why don't we say that hmm. uh, for uh, Stephen Del Duca? He's basically trailing his party by about seven or eight percentage points. This compares to both Ford and Horvath. Ford, Ford's favorabilities are higher than uh, party standings at around 40. And uh, Andrea Horvath's favorability ratings are uh, higher than her part, parties because she's at around 39% favorability mm. compared to the party's ballot numbers, which are at 26. So no political coattails for Stephen Del Duca. I guess one way to look at it is that there's room for improvement. Yeah. The other way to look at it is he's not a boost to the uh, to the liberal political fortunes at this particular point mm. in time. Well, we've sort of seen one uh, attempt, I guess, at a Hail Mary pass from, from him, and, and that was promising electoral reform. Uh, seems like a very bold move. Uh, we saw that before from uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, I believe. Uh, yes. Right. Yes. Justin Trudeau, pre-2015 campaigned on electoral reform because obviously our electoral system and democracy was broken. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, a funny thing happened. He won under the old system and then all of a sudden electoral reform hasn't been as much, I won't say it's not a priority, has not been as much of a priority compared to other things. Now, in fairness, the guys had to deal with the pandemic, mm -hmm. right? So he had to deal with Donald Trump and a pandemic, two calamities, why don't we say that any government, whether conservative or liberal or whatever party it is would be difficult to deal with it, it's understandable how electoral reform uh, you know has has taken a bit of a back seat in the agenda of the government however what we've seen is a pattern of behavior and this isn't liberal this is just in general parties that are not winners talk about electoral reform and then if they happen to win under the system all of a sudden maybe it's not too bad let's keep mm -hmm. the system the way it is because you know it has kept them in power the fact of the matter is, if the Liberals had embarked on electoral reform in 2015, they could have lost the 2019 and the 2021 election, because we do know that they received less votes than the Conservatives. And in uh, any sort of electoral reform, whoever wins the greatest number of votes, that would have been a political advantage for that party, and it wouldn't have helped the Liberals in 2019 and 2021. Wow. Uh, Nick, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will be talking about uh, the border. Sounds good. And we're back. Uh, Nick, a lot of anxiety inducing headlines about the Omicron variants uh, uh, in the past week or two. We have uh, been toughening up our, 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 our international travel uh, restrictions, uh, trying to, you know, uh, keep this variant from spreading. Um, what about our border with the U.S.? How do Canadians feel about, about that these days? 
Well, Canadians have a fixation, a compulsion, an utter focus on the border. It's because 90% of the population lives within a one-hour drive of the U.S. border. And, you know, what's interesting is just this week, the government introduced more stringent uh, rules for travel, not just across the border, but within Canada for, an I'll call it a, an absolute proof of vaccination to travel. But, you know, the thing is, is what's interesting is that Canadians are cross-pressured on this. In polling that we've done, and uh, we do a lot of polling on the on border issues and perceptions of health threats and, and security threats and stuff like that, in uh, in research that we did earlier this year, when we ask uh, Canadians and then we also asked Americans, we did a survey of Americans and Canadians and asked them where the greatest health threat was. Interestingly, if you ask Canadians, the top health threat threat was in Canada and in the United States perceived of as being China. But when we ask about each other, we get some really interesting results. 30% of Canadians believe that the greatest health threat to Canada is actually the United States. The kicker is ask an American and only 5% of Americans think that Canada is the greatest health threat to America. So wow. that's only one out of every 20, which means there's a bit of an asymmetrical view here where when Canadians think of the U.S., there's a significant proportion see the U.S. as a threat to the health and uh, as a health threat, but that Canada is not on the, uh, not really on the radar in America as a health threat. Probably explains why the Americans want to open things up. If they're looking at polling like this, it's a, hey, no one thinks of Canada as a problem from a health perspective. Let's mm -hmm. open up that border and get people uh, moving across it. But for Canadians, there's still three out of every 10 that uh, think that the U.S. represents a health threat to Canada. That's fascinating. Uh, Nick, do you think, uh, uh, are we looking at, uh, you know, pressure from the Americans to, to keep the border uh, open this time around uh, as the Omicron variant spreads? Well, I think the Americans are want to keep the border open. And I think, you know, we need to keep the border open. First of all, we need to say that because it's very important for the economy to keep the, uh, the border functioning well. But I think what this puts into spotlight is that as we keep the border functioning to keep the economy going, it's going to be probably more important for the Canadian government to explain how this open border will work and what will be in place in order to protect Canadians. So this is not about closing the border. This is just about a greater burden on the, I'll say the Canadian government at least, to explain how the border will work and how the Canadian government will minimize health threats from outside in terms of the movement of people. Hmm. Uh, Nick, as always, thanks very much. Uh, and where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Nick, N-I-K Nanos, or visit the website for tons of data at www.nanos.co. And for more about the news that Nick and I have discussed in this episode, of course, you can also go to ctvnews.ca. Thanks for listening.